We're going to be in Revelation chapter 19 this morning for the whole morning. So if you've got a Bible, get over to Revelation 19. When I was in high school, I would occasionally play a game with some friends in the field that was next to our school. It was uh, a version of field handball, which we don't play a whole lot in the United States, but some of my friends uh, figured out how to play kind of a cross between football and basketball, maybe with a little bit of rugby thrown in there. Uh, and so we would play in the mud. We would play in the, in the sunny conditions. It didn't really matter. The important part about this story that you're going to want to remember, though, is that uh, it was a full contact sport. And being high school boys, we often played it with no protective equipment. Now, usually that wasn't much of a problem. Most of my classmates were not that much bigger than I was. And most of the time, you, just, you didn't get tackled that hard or that full on. But there was one guy that played with us. Uh, that always uh, made me afraid when he played with us, if he was on the opposing team. Uh, this guy was on our high school football team. I've mentioned before, our high school didn't have a great football team. In fact, we had a terrible team. But we had a couple of really good players, and this guy was one of them. Uh, he outweighed me by probably 100 pounds. That might be a conservative estimate. He was about six inches taller than I was at the time. And in fact, after he graduated high school, he went on and played football at Rice and ended up being an all-American offensive guard at Rice. So uh, way beyond our league for this little pickup game of field handball uh, at the school. So if I had the ball and he was on the opposing team and he was running toward me, I'll admit that I didn't even try to go head-to-head -head with this guy because I knew I would lose. So I would either toss the ball away or I would run out of bounds or maybe just fall on the ground and curl up in a fetal position and hope he didn't hurt me. I was not gonna go against this guy because I knew I could not win. Now, on the other hand, I loved when he was on my team because it was a lot more fun to run down the field with him in front of me than to be running down the field with him running at me. I loved when I was behind him as he moved down the field and plowed the opposition to the dirt. You couldn't beat him. You were either with him or you were against him. It was much better to be with him. As we near the end of the book of Revelation and get into Revelation 19 this morning, we're going to talk this morning about the second coming of Jesus. What this passage is going to demonstrate to us is that when Jesus comes back, on the day that Jesus comes back from heaven, everybody on the planet is either going to be with him or against him. And it is infinitely better to be with him, riding behind him in victory, than to be against him, underneath him, facing judgment and defeat. Nobody on the planet has the option of some middle ground. You are either on that day among the people of Jesus or you are among those who are opposing Jesus who will face judgment. That's what Revelation 19 is gonna show us. Let me just remind you where we are in the flow of the book of Revelation. If you remember, throughout the last several weeks in the book of Revelation, we've mostly been in this seven-year great tribulation Period. So just a quick refresher. Uh, at the beginning of the book, you remember we talked about right now, you and I were living in this church age of an indeterminate time period. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church that's described in 1 Thessalonians 
chapter 4, where we meet Jesus in the air and we go up to heaven to be with him. After that follows this seven-year tribulation period in which God is launching judgments upon the unbelieving world, but also he is drawing the nation of Israel to himself to prepare them for the fulfillment of his covenant promises, and he's drawing people to Jesus from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So the tribulation period, as we've described it, it's a period of judgment, but also a period of mercy. There are judgments on the earth, but all of these witnesses and testimonies and angels saying, turn to God, believe in Jesus, repent from your unbelief and your sin, and you can find eternal life. Everybody has that option who is still here during that seven-year tribulation period. Most will not believe. And so now we are in Revelation 19, and you remember last week we said uh, the kingdom of Babylon, this kingdom that has opposed God and his people, it's going to be destroyed to pave the way for the kingdom of Jesus. And so now that that kingdom is destroyed, the kingdom of Jesus comes, and it begins with the second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus, Revelation chapter 19. That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at Revelation chapter 19. And again, there's a very stark contrast in this passage. Probably more than any other passage in the book of Revelation, this passage will call us to ask the question, on the day that Jesus returns, will you be with him or against him? Will you be riding behind him in victory or standing in opposition to him facing defeat and devastation? The second coming of Jesus is going to be a celebration for his people, but it will be devastation for the people who oppose him. That's what Revelation 19 is about, to pave the way for the coming kingdom of Jesus. Here's what we're going to see in Revelation 19. When Jesus returns, his people will party, but his rivals will perish. Now, I framed that, I realize, in a provocative way. I showed it to somebody uh, this week who was like, man, you're going to have some people that are like, we're going we're gonna to party? That seems a little bit scandalous for the pastor to say in church. I'm going to defend this exegetically from the passage, that when Jesus returns, his people will party, but his rivals will perish, and there's no middle ground. That's what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 19. And again, the question is, will you be with Jesus in this great celebration? Or will you be opposing him? And for those that we know who don't yet know Jesus, will we be inviting them with our words and our lives to join us at the greatest celebration in all of human history that will last for eternity? When Jesus returns, his people will party, will celebrate, but his rivals will perish and face devastation. Follow with me, Revelation chapter 19. Now, I want to remind you, last week we read the first five verses of Revelation chapter 19. You may remember at the beginning of Revelation 19 uh, is a fourfold hallelujah. The angels in heaven, the 24 elders, and the living creatures, and other angels, and the people of God all celebrate hallelujah, praise the Lord, because he has destroyed the kingdom of Babylon. Now we're going to begin in verse 6, the fourth of these hallelujahs, where we're going to hear the, the voices of a multitude of people, probably the saints of God in heaven, 
celebrating the destruction of Babylon, but also rejoicing because the moment has come for the kingdom of Jesus to arrive and the people of Jesus to celebrate with him forever. So follow with me, chapter 19, starting in verse 6. John says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So again, when Jesus returns, there's this invitation to a great party. So all of these voices in heaven, they say, praise God, because Babylon is destroyed. But also they say, the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns or has begun to reign. Now begins the moment where the old kingdoms that opposed God and his people, they have been destroyed, and the new kingdom will emerge, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who reigns over all the nations, who created the entire universe, who died and rose again to redeem us, to save us from our sin. The kingdom of God has begun. And they say, let us rejoice. We're gonna celebrate. We're gonna be glad. Why? Because the marriage of the lamb has come. So there's gonna be a feast. Verse nine, right? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. I love this. So the the thing that they say is, look, Jesus is coming back. We're gonna party. We're gonna feast. Now, all throughout the world, when people want to celebrate, when people want to thank God for something or they just want to be happy that they have family and friends, people get together and they feast. That is true all throughout the world. It's been true all throughout history. In fact, this coming week, we will celebrate one of the great sacred feasts of the American culture, the Feast of Thanksgiving. And so you'll gather together with your friends and what are you going to do? You're going to eat and so some of you, even now, maybe you are, you're saying, I'm going to fast Monday through Wednesday so that I've got the maximum amount of stomach capacity to feast on Thursday. Feasting is a sign that we're celebrating, that we're rejoicing. That's, in fact, how we're designed. I'm going to say feasting is actually biblical. When you go back into the Old Testament When God commanded the people of Israel to remember and celebrate specific events in the life of the nation, he actually commands them to feast. So think about Passover. They would gather once a year, and they were supposed to, in fact, journey to Jerusalem, and they would gather, and they would celebrate a feast that marked God delivering them from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. They also had a feast that was called Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would journey to Jerusalem, and they would build tents or or small tabernacles, and what they were celebrating, what they were remembering, was that as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided for them. So they thanked God for providing for them in their desert wanderings. They also had uh, this, this Feast of Pentecost, where they would celebrate the harvest season in the promised 
land that God had provided. So all of these feasts of Israel were meant to say, thank you, God, for all that you've done, for delivering us, for providing for us, for bringing us into the land you promised. Well, now, here in Revelation 19, this isn't just any feast. This is a marriage feast. This is a big feast where all of this is going to be celebrated all at once, that all throughout history, what God has been doing is he's been delivering his people from their enemies, from sin and death and Satan. He's been providing, he's been caring for his people as we have wandered in the journey of this life. And now we're entering the promised kingdom, the promised land. And so all of this comes together in this one massive feast that's called a marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus Christ will be united to his bride. And we'll talk in just a minute about who the bride is and what this is going to look like. But what, what I want to talk about for a minute is, is this marriage feast idea. Because most of us have been to weddings. And certainly there might be a dinner or uh, some kind of eating at a wedding. There might even be a big dinner. We do dinners for, for weddings in our culture. We don't do it to the extent that they did it in the ancient world. So the way that a wedding would work in the ancient world of John's day and of Jesus' day and even of the Old Testament is when a couple would get betrothed. It was often kind of a year-long period where they were contractually obligated to marry one another. They were called to be faithful to one another. And during that time, the groom would be getting things ready for the day that they would be united so that uh, when they were married, it was customary for the groom to bring his bride to his parents' home. And so while he got ready, he would maybe even build a room or an apartment onto his father's home where he would bring his bride after they got married. So if that sounds familiar, it's probably because you're thinking of Jesus' words in John chapter 14. Jesus is using wedding type of imagery. John 14, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom going away when he died and rose and ascended to heaven. He goes away to prepare a place for his bride. And he says, I'm going to come back like a good bridegroom will. I'm going to come back and get you one day and bring you to my home. So the groom would then leave and he would go get his bride and they would go through the streets with celebration and dancing and everybody would know the wedding day has arrived and then they would get formally married and then following that marriage ceremony, there would be a feast and that feast would last often for days. I mean, they would just feast and rejoice and celebrate for days and days and days on end. If you think today's weddings cost a lot of money, those weddings cost a lot of money for the family because they would feast and feast and feast for all of their friends and all of their family. That's the imagery of Revelation 19, that now the groom is returning and he's gonna unite himself to his bride and there's going to be a party, a celebration, a marriage feast that isn't just going to last for two days or three days or a week. It's going to last forever. And so what we see is this celebration here right before the coming of Jesus where, where the people of God are saying, hey, we're going to rejoice because now's the moment. 
where Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, will be united once and for all with his bride, with his people, and we will celebrate forever. All that's kicking off with the second coming of Jesus, and it will move into the thousand-year kingdom that we'll see in a couple of weeks in Revelation 20, and then to the eternal new heavens and new earth that we'll see uh, in the last part of the book, that this is a feast that's going to go on forever. Now, the question a lot of people ask, though, is who is the bride? If Jesus is the groom, I mean, we can say generally his people are the bride, but specifically, who is the bride? And, and there are different views on that. Uh, but as you walk throughout the Bible, you'll find the Old Testament saints, those who have exercised faith in the promises of God, uh, those people are often called the bride. Israel is often referred to as the bride of Jesus. And in the New Testament, the church, those of us in this age from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who have trusted in Jesus are referred to as the bride. So let me show you a couple of illustrations. Isaiah chapter 62 it will no longer be said to you, and the, and the you here is actually the city of Jerusalem that represents the nation of Israel. It's the capital city that represents the people of Israel. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. You see this kind of imagery? We talked about a little bit of it last week because often Israel is viewed as an unfaithful bride in need of forgiveness, in need of redemption. But Israel is viewed at times as the bride of God in the Old Testament. And of course, in the, in the New Testament, most famously in Ephesians 5, the church, those who trust in Jesus in this age, are referred to as the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. In other words, Paul says, marriage itself is just a living picture, a living metaphor of the relationship of Jesus with the church. So Old Testament, it's Israel. New Testament, it's the church. So which is it in Revelation chapter 19? I actually think it is both put together. All right, now I want to be clear here. Israel, we're going to see, there are some promises God has made to the nation of Israel and it, that will be fulfilled here to those in Israel who trust in Jesus. So Israel and the church aren't the same thing. But as you move to the end of the book, we're going to see that the bride ultimately includes Israel and the church. How do I defend that? Revelation chapter 21, an angel says to John, he says, hey, John, come and see the bride who has, who has made herself ready. And, and he shows John the city of Jerusalem. That should sound familiar from Isaiah 62. And he sees the new city of Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. And there's a couple of details about the new Jerusalem that we'll see that really, really matter here. One, there are 12 gates, and on each gate is written the name of one of the tribes of the nation of Israel. But there are also 12 foundation stones in the new city 
of Jerusalem. And on each foundation stone is written the name of one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, the bride of Christ in the new Jerusalem living together. This is all being kicked off here. And so John says, this is the moment where the groom is coming for his bride. And now God's people are going to celebrate. And so the angel says, hey, John, I want you to write, blessed are those who are invited to this feast. This is going to be a great celebration. And so John, instead of starting to write at this moment, actually falls down to worship the angel. He just gets a little too eager and excited. This happens a few times throughout the book to John. And the angel goes, don't do that. Stand up. I'm just a servant like you. And he goes, here's the issue. He says, the testimony of Jesus, that is the words about Jesus, that's the spirit of prophecy. I think what he's saying is that true Holy Spirit-inspired prophecy from God, the true words of God are about Jesus Christ. They're not about an angel. They're not about a messenger. They're not about an apostle. It's all about Jesus. He says, John, you need to understand. It's Jesus you need to be worshiping because Jesus is the one who will now unite all of God's people together so his people will celebrate and worship and party forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So of course this passage is gonna call us to ask, do I know that I'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Do I know that? Have I exercised faith in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of my sins and eternal life? Because again, on that day, there's no middle ground. There's no third option. Those who are Jesus' people will celebrate and party. But then we're also going to see this is the moment that his rivals will perish. His rivals will perish. Follow with me in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So you read that and you go, man, that took a dark turn right there at the end. 
But I want you to notice something. There are two feasts in this passage, two suppers, and both of them are described using the same Greek word. There is the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the lamb, and then there is the feast of the birds as they feast on the flesh of the enemies of God. It is intended to be a bit shocking. If the first feast is this, this may be what your Thanksgiving table is going to look like. Some of you may even have that gather sign in your home, over the table. It's warm. It's inviting. It's where the family gathers together. If this is the first feast, the second feast is this one for the birds. And I share that not to make light of a difficult moment, but I, but I want us to see that there is an intentional, ironic contrast being made in this passage. One feast is filled with joy. The other is filled with devastation. One feast is the vindication of God's people and the fact that they will celebrate eternally. The other feast is the feast of the birds as they feast on the defeated and devastated enemies of God. And all will be at one feast or the other. We've talked throughout this book about how the judgment of God is an expression of his vindication of his people. Remember, all throughout history, God has been offering opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to join the first feast, to trust in Jesus Christ and be behind him rather than in opposition to him. But the day will come when Jesus will arrive to destroy his enemies and to vindicate his people. That's what we see in chapter 19. I want to walk through this description of Jesus' return in some detail this morning because I want us to understand how powerful this return of Jesus Christ is. John says, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it. Why is Jesus riding a white horse? Well, I think the imagery here probably goes back to some imagery from ancient Rome when a victorious Roman general would defeat the enemies of Rome. He would often have a victory procession through the streets of Rome. They would ride up what was called the Via Sacra, the central street in Rome. And this general uh, would ride at the front and he would ride with his soldiers behind him, but also behind him would be captors, people they had captured in battle who were now defeated enemies. And there would also be all of the plunder that they had taken from all of their enemies. And so he would ride through the streets as people celebrated the victorious and returning conqueror. Now, Jesus here is on a white horse because he is the victorious and returning conqueror. But I want you to notice, the battle hasn't happened yet. But the victory is so certain that the warrior is already on his white horse. It's sure to happen. And he has a name. He's called Faithful and True. This is the first of three names given to Jesus in this passage. He's called Faithful and True. Because everything he says corresponds with reality, with God's reality and not man's reality. 
And every promise that he has made to his people, to the nation of Israel, to the church, every promise he has made is about to come true. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. In other words, John says, this is the only fully and truly just war in all of human history. Every other war that we have fought has been tainted by our own sin and violence and thirst for revenge and blood. This is the only war that will be fought that is fully just and righteous. This picture of Christ's judgment and righteousness, it goes back to Isaiah chapter 11, a messianic prophecy that says, and he, that is the Messiah, will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. We see Jesus also in this passage with a sword coming from his mouth to destroy God's enemies in judgment. His eyes are a flame of fire, verse 2. We saw that, or verse 12, excuse me, we saw that same picture back in chapter 1. Remember when John first sees the crucified and risen Jesus, his eyes are described as a flame of fire because he is fully discerning. He knows everything, including the hearts of mankind, including our sins, and including whether our names are written in the book of life because we have trusted in Jesus. He knows everything, and he is about to judge. His eyes are a flame of fire. Now, this one I love. On his head are many diadems. Now, I love this because you may remember in chapters 12 and 13, there are some other characters who wear diadems. Satan wears diadems. He wears uh, seven diadems. And the Antichrist wears diadems. He wears ten diadems to try to, to tell you, hey, we're important. We're in charge. We rule the world. Well, here comes Jesus from heaven. And I love this. He is wearing, John just says, many diadems. There's just lots of them. There's a few times in this book where that happens to John. He tries to count, it seems like, and he's like, you know, it's just a lot. So if you go back to Revelation 5, he's like, there were 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. And then he goes, and then I looked, and one, two, three, four. It was just a great multitude, a whole lot of people. I don't know how many, more than I could count. The same thing happens here. Here comes Jesus, and he's described in detail the number of diadems that the Antichrist and that Satan are wearing. And here comes Jesus, and he goes, it was just a lot. Because Jesus, it's as if Jesus is saying, hey, you guys are cute with your little pretend collection of diadems that don't carry any real authority. But I have every one that there is. Rulership and authority over every nation, every king, every person in all of the universe because Jesus created the universe, Jesus redeemed his people, and now he's coming to reign. So that on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Probably an indication to the fact that in the ancient world to know somebody's true name, their true hidden name was to have control over that person. Jesus has a name that nobody knows. Nobody controls Jesus. Nobody's in charge of Jesus. Jesus is supreme and sovereign over all the kingdoms and kings of the earth. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now that's interesting because the battle hasn't happened yet. And yet he's already clothed in a robe dipped in the blood 
of his enemies. This imagery goes back to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah says, who is this who comes from Edom? Edom was a, was a constant enemy of the nation of Israel. They bordered the nation and they were constantly at war. So there's this figure coming from Edom after a battle against the enemies of God's people. The one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I love the way that passage ends. This is a day of judgment for God's enemies, but a day of redemption for the people of God. So Christ's robe is dipped in blood as he prepares to demolish those who would dare to stand against God and his people. His name is called the Word of God. That's the second name, excuse me, the third name of Jesus in the passage, which obviously goes back to John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the perfect representation of the words and the will of God because he is God in human flesh. His name is called the Word of God. Everything he does is consistent with God's character. Everything he says comes from the voice of God himself. Verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, people debate here whether these armies are angels or whether they are the church, the people of God. I lean toward this being the church, the people of God. And here's why. Because earlier in the passage, remember, uh, the people of God, the bride, are described as being clothed in fine, bright linen, which are the righteous acts of the saints. The idea is through Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf, we have been set free from sin and death. We have been given eternal life, but we've also, we saw it in Ephesians 5, he's washed us clean and allowed us to participate in works that honor him, that glorify him. He has made us clean. And so all throughout history, God has been building a people who will glorify and reflect him on that day that he returns. We see that all throughout the New Testament, that our works add to the brightness of this garment, not because we earn our salvation, but because they are a demonstration of how God has changed us and redeemed us and made us new. And so here come these armies behind Jesus, clothed in bright, fine linen. I think that's us, the people who know Jesus Christ. We are riding with him into battle. Now, I know some of you are like, hey, I'm not much of a warrior. I don't really want to kill anybody. I don't really want to hurt anybody. Let me tell you to rest assured, because we do nothing in this battle except ride behind the king. He does all the fighting. He wins the victory. It reminds me of a story. I've told this before. One of my favorite sports stories. Uh, this happened March 28th, 1990. That was the day that Michael Jordan scored the most points he ever scored in a game against the Cleveland Cavaliers. He scored 69 points. They won the game 117 to 113. Now, after the game, reporters were interviewing a rookie forward by the name of Stacy King. Stacy King scored one point. He got one free throw. 
in the game. And they said, how, how does it feel uh, to win this game? And he said, and I quote, I'll always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. I love that quote. I mean, from a real technical standpoint, his one point made zero difference in the outcome of the game. But he was a part of it. And he got to ride on the victory of his teammate. When Jesus returns, you're going to see, we really don't contribute anything. Jesus has done all the work. Jesus will do all the work. But we get to participate and receive the blessings and the spoils of his victory because we've trusted in him. So the armies of heaven are riding with him, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. We saw that a moment ago in Isaiah. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is a reference to Psalm chapter two, this great messianic psalm where the nations and the kings of the nations conspire against God and his anointed one saying, let us cast off their fetters. And it says, the Lord in heaven laughs. The Lord in heaven laughs. He says, as for me, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And it says, that king, he will shatter the nations like earthenware and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is the moment that the king God has installed has arrived to claim his kingdom. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, sovereign over every nation, every king, every ruler. This is Jesus who has come now to vindicate his people and to judge all of his enemies. And as we said, on the day that Jesus returns, you're either riding behind him or you're standing to try to oppose him. And it's infinitely better to be behind him than in front of him. Because here's, here's what happens is uh, we, we saw this, the, the beast and the false prophet, the antichrist, his false prophet, and all the kings of the earth, they gather together, it says, to make war against the king, to make war against the one who's on the horse. This, by the way, is the great battle of Armageddon. In chapter 16, we saw that they had, they had gathered at Armageddon to make war against God and his Savior. But what we're going to see, the, the battle of Armageddon is no battle at all. We talk about it like it's some huge deal. There's really no fight at all. Look what happens in verses 20 and 21. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. We'll see the lake of fire again uh, in the next couple of weeks. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. There's not any fighting described. Jesus arrives, and the battle's already over. He takes the Antichrist. He takes the false prophet. He casts them to this place of eternal judgment. And he wipes out all their armies. And it's over in two verses after this long description of the coming of the king. In that day, no opposition to Jesus Christ and his people will stand. 
everybody will either be with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb or facing devastation as they've chosen the side of his enemies. That's, that's the contrast we see. Now, I do want to point out one thing. You may have noticed there's one major character who has not yet been dealt with in Revelation 19. That's the dragon, Satan himself. We're going to see he will get his comeuppance in chapter 20. But for the moment, the human messengers of God's enemy are destroyed. When Jesus returns, his people will party, his rivals will perish. So like I said at the beginning, this passage is going to call us to ask a couple of, uh, I think, important questions, maybe deeply significant questions. The first one is simply this, will you be at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Do you know that you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life and forgiveness of your sins? One of the things we've seen in the last few chapters is that every other uh, thing or kingdom or religion that people try to trust in apart from Jesus, it's all going to be destroyed in the end. There will only be Jesus Christ, his people, and his kingdom remaining. Do you know that you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone? His death for your sins, his resurrection to eternal life. Have you exercised faith in him alone to forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life? If not, I encourage you, come and talk with me. I would love to talk with you. Talk with somebody that you know that's in the room, maybe that you came with in the room today. Don't leave the room without knowing that you trust in Jesus and you'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you do know that, then the question I want to ask is, will you invite others to the feast? This week is a great opportunity for that. As you celebrate the Thanksgiving feast with your family, with your friends, maybe with others, coworkers, neighbors, and maybe you have more time to engage with people than you do throughout the rest of the year. Will you take the opportunity to tell people about the hope and life offered through Jesus? To invite others to the feast just as Jesus Christ invited you and me. To tell them of hope. Will you be at the marriage supper? Will you invite others to the feast? My prayer is that everyone in this room and those that we know will be at the greatest celebration that will never, ever end. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your word. We are thankful for this opportunity to study it this morning, for what it has to say to us about your character and about your plans, about your love and your mercy and your righteousness and your sovereignty. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would continue to praise and thank you for how you've redeemed us. And we would invite as many as possible to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I pray that we would be bold as well as kind. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.